Many analysts argue that we are witnessing today a seismic shift in global stability, at the core of which is concern about the new nuclear arms race. Against the backdrop of rapidly developing technologies that continue to revolutionize nuclear weapons capability, there remains issues such as North Korea's expanding nuclear capacity and China's vision for its future missile arsenal. In this context, much is being written about the emergence of a new Cold War and a second nuclear age. So, what can we anticipate policymakers can do to move us away from this present-day nuclear competition? My name is Franz Stefangadi, and welcome to another episode of the East-West Institute's Sound Discussion Podcast. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking to Eric Gomez and Caroline Dormini of the Cato Institute. Eric and Caroline, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. Eric is a policy analyst for defense and foreign policy studies at Cato, where his research focuses on U.S. military strategy in East Asia, missile defense systems and their impact on strategic stability, and nuclear deterrence issues in East Asia. Caroline is the policy director at Women's Actions for New Directions and handles a portfolio of nuclear policy, arms control and defense issues. She previously spent two years at the Cato Institute as a policy analyst. Eric and Caroline are the co-editors of America's Nuclear Crossroads, a forward-looking anthology. Released earlier this year, the study examines a wide variety of pressing issues in nuclear deterrence and arms control confronting U.S. policymakers. Let me kick off the discussion with a survey that I came across this morning that was published by a German foundation. According to this survey, the U.S. nuclear umbrella plays a crucial role for German security. And the numbers here are really interesting. 22% of respondents said that Germany should continue to rely on the U.S. for nuclear protection. 40% said that the country should seek nuclear protection from France and the U.K. Only 7% said that Germany should develop its own nuclear weapons. And 31% said that Germany should forego nuclear protection. So I think this survey is very useful to explain to our audience some of the key themes in your book. So, Eric, let me first of all ask you, what is so, quote unquote, crucial when it comes to nuclear weapons and Germany's security? What are the wider implications here? So nuclear weapons are very important for Germany's security because for the United States, we have a very hard-working nuclear deterrent in the sense that not only does our deterrent protect us in terms of our homeland from adversary attack, but we also extend nuclear guarantees to allies in order to protect them as well. And for years, this has been a crucial component of non-proliferation policy. The idea that the U.S. doesn't want as many countries as possible to have nuclear weapons, therefore, by extending a nuclear umbrella to a country like Germany, we can give them confidence that we will be able to protect them um, using our nuclear forces against any threats that they might face so they don't have to feel the need to develop their own nuclear forces. And the poll that you reference in terms of uh, the public opinions about how Germany should be protected um, with nuclear weapons, it's interesting to see this shift to greater support for a French or a, or a UK deterrent Um, And it gets at an issue in extended deterrence that has existed since as long as extended deterrence as a concept has existed, which is the credibility of the commitments, right? And the United States has always faced an uphill battle 
in trying to make this idea that we would be willing to go toe-to-toe with the Russians with nuclear arms over another country that isn't our own, um, and convincing both the adversary um, and Germany that we would actually do this. And under the Trump administration, with just sort of the general way he's dealt with alliances, this is a commitment that I think is being thrown into question for good reason. This is very interesting. It really brings about this whole discussion that essentially has permeated the entire Cold War years about this idea that the United States is protecting Europe against a Soviet nuclear first strike. And European politicians were always concerned that the United States at some point, when it came to a crisis, it would not trade, for example, Washington, D.C. for West Berlin. So this recent trend towards moving away, perhaps, from the U.S. nuclear umbrella is not something new. And I was just wondering, if we go back to the Cold War years, Caroline, do you think there are some particular aspects that you think are important to policymakers today when it comes to the ongoing nuclear competition? If I had to put it in a singular type of concept, I would say that arms control is going to be a huge factor that you know initially began in the Cold War and is incredibly crucial today. Um, that's one of the reasons that we have a continuing source of stability and that there are actual limits on not only the Russian stockpile of nuclear weapons, but also the American stockpile of nuclear weapons. That's how we've been able to reduce the number of nuclear weapons worldwide since the end of the Cold War. So there is a broader conversation, especially among um, the policy community, that arms control under the Trump administration has been, you know, in a word, deprioritized. There have been a significant number of bilateral agreements and multilateral agreements that have been either withdrawn or seriously questioned under this administration. And um, it's something that the policymaking community, especially in Congress, needs to take seriously is that really one of the last bilateral arms control agreements, um, that would be New START, the one that actually imposes those limits on the Russian and American arsenals, is set to expire in roughly a year. It's February 2021. Um, So looking ahead, that is definitely something to keep an eye on, is fighting for an extension of that arms control agreement. And to piggyback off this issue of, of New START, uh, New START also plays an, a vital role in determining what America's nuclear force posture looks like. And we are currently in the early years of a modernization plan. Um, Caroline wrote the anthology chapter about you know ways that we can adjust this plan to potentially get some cost savings. Um, but it's this idea that permeates the anthology of, you know, there are Cold War things happening or, or things that the U.S.'s uh, decisions that we are making in nuclear policy that are rooted in certain concepts that might have worked very well during the Cold War, but that might not work as well today, just given changes in global distribution of power, emerging technology, um, and just the challenges of modern deterrence. Uh, You said, Franz, that earlier that in the Cold War we were very much worried about a Soviet first strike, and we developed a nuclear arsenal to meet that challenge. And now I think the concern is different. I don't think that that is a particularly pressing concern. 
And if that is not the concern anymore, then we ought to be thinking about ways to change our force postures to account for the new reality. And if Caroline wants to go into the, her chapter and sort of some of her recommendations for how a changing force structure might look. So let's focus on uh, this chapter that you wrote, Caroline, where you examine uh, the United States 30-year, $1 trillion nuclear modernization plan. And you basically say that this is now an opportune moment to reassess the U.S. nuclear arsenal. As you see it, what are some of the potential areas for cost-cutting? So when you think about our nuclear arsenal, America's nuclear arsenal, policymakers and intellectuals in this area frequently describe it as the nuclear triad. So that's a three-pronged approach to the delivery systems that would get a nuclear weapon where it needs to go in a crisis, in, in a potential conflict. So there's the air leg of the triad, which is primarily bombers. There is the ground leg, which is ICBMs, is the acronym for it, but it's basically just really giant missiles that are buried deep in the ground in silos. Um, there is also the sea leg, which is the submarine leg of the nuclear triad. So when you're thinking about America's arsenal, you have to think about it in terms of these three kinds of delivery systems. And they all have different advantages and disadvantages. And so when I was writing this chapter, it was really looking at each leg independently and analyzing what their relative use is moving forward. These are all systems that were put in place during the Cold War in order to ensure that if a missile came in and if someone, if another country attacked us, we would be able to respond. But just like Eric said, there are emerging, emerging technologies that are changing. There is a landscape that is changing. So you have to look at these systems and especially how much money we are set to invest in them with somewhat of a critical eye. If I were to put a few areas to maybe look at potential decreases, I would start with the ground leg. They are static, they are in the ground, and they're endangering the people that are around them. Those are not put in, you know, completely depopulated areas of American soil. Um, and they are incredibly costly in the sense that we are looking at having to completely overhaul not just the warheads, but also the missiles themselves and all of the infrastructure associated with that leg. So there's a lot that can be done um, in terms of trimming that leg down to size. And so a lot of the cost savings from my chapter come from really analyzing the relative worth of the ground leg of the triad. I think the air leg of the triad, there are also some arguments to be made about, you know, which planes really need a nuclear mission. Uh, the F-35 is slated to have a nuclear mission. I personally don't believe that it should have a nuclear mission. It is already an incredibly overburdened platform. Um, as well as the B-21, we can talk about making sure that we're buying the right amount of that plane because it's still something that is in the very, very early years of production. Um, in terms of the sea leg, that's an area where I would not actually recommend cutting because it is by far the most survivable leg of our nuclear triad incredibly hard for our adversaries to track these submarines. Um, they are arguably the highest value asset in our arsenal, just in terms of 
conventional force and nuclear force. Um, so that's an area where I actually wouldn't recommend cusps. Um, so I can go into more detail if we need to, but that's a kind of a top line overview. Well, so what do you think, what kind of message this would send to U.S. allies and competitors, though, if the United States were to cut its ICBM arsenal significantly and also cut back on nuclear-capable bombers? I mean, I don't think that it would send a negative signal, ultimately. This is about making sure that we are investing in the priorities that keep Americans and our allies safer. And if that is not a bunch of new ICBMs, then we shouldn't be wasting our money on it, ultimately. It's about making sure that we have a agile, lean nuclear arsenal that can respond to forward-looking threats. And that does not necessarily fit with a model that puts a large portion of the United States in a scenario where it's just there to absorb a first strike missile. It's just there in order to make sure that there are so many targets that an adversary would have to go after in one fell swoop that it raises the bar too high to even contemplate making that first strike. So it's really about being forward thinking and I think our allies would agree that we have to husband our resources very carefully. And to build on this point, extended deterrence as a concept, which is what we use to protect the allies and give them confidence. Usually nuclear forces are highly associated with the concept of deterrence for obvious reason, but they don't have to be. And deterrence is just a theory of how do you prevent certain outcomes from happening. And if nuclear forces that the United States have are not well suited to preventing the types of activity that we most worry about with allies, say in Asia, for example, U.S. nuclear weapons probably don't have anything to do with adjusting China's behavior in the South China Sea, for example, or adjusting North Korean calculations of do I invade South Korea. And I think that as technology and as circumstances have changed, we are in a position where the United States could provide a similar level of deterrence as a concept to friends and partners without relying on the nuclear forces as much. And the Obama administration, I think, attempted to do this in 2010 with their nuclear posture review when they tried to de-emphasize the role that nuclear weapons play in U.S. national security strategy. And Trump has, Trump has reversed that decision. He's tried to make it more important. Um, but I think that is how we ought to look at it. Um, and if allies are worried about the cuts, I mean, at a certain level, there's the U.S. will never be able to fully reassure any ally ever. Um, and so I think that instead of focusing on, you know, how will they worry about it or, or uh, what might the counter reaction be, I think we need to look at it from the perspective, like Caroline said, of what is the best strategic use of our limited resources, especially in the time period where um, we're going to have to start focusing, I think, on fewer but higher priority challenges like the rise of China and try and uh, return to a prioritization. Absolutely. And I, I want to pull on a thread that Eric brought up in that in a lot of policy conversations, nuclear weapons get completely walled off from our discussion of conventional strength. And that just means we talk about nuclear weapons and our nuclear arsenal 
so much in isolation that I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that we also have the largest conventional force on the globe. We spend more as a country on our defense budget year to year than the next 10 countries combined. And that's a lot of conventional strength that we also have to bring to bear in a conversation about deterrence, because it's not just our nuclear forces that make us so powerful. It is also the strength of our economy. It's also the strength of our military. It is also how we are choosing to invest in all of these priorities. And so I do want to make sure that we are talking about nuclear weapons, but just making sure that we are giving everyone a little bit more context for how we're evaluating what we should be investing more in and what we should be maybe divesting of moving forward. I really like your emphasis on conventional capabilities and what role they play in deterrence overall. And I guess what you're saying is also that you don't necessarily need new weapon systems in the United States uh, to bolster extended deterrence and that it's really much more also about posture rather than just introducing new weapon systems into the arsenal of the United States. But perhaps let's move on to a different chapter that I really enjoyed, uh, the one on nuclear blackmail. And I think that's something that our audience, I think, would be very much interested in. And this idea of nuclear blackmail, that one state can coerce others simply by wielding nuclear threats, I think is a very important one in the 21st century. Eric, I will, I will toss the first part of this question your way. Do you find that nuclear weapons and the threat of their use are actually effective tools by states? Well, thanks. And this is a issue that is a great, another great example of that connection between the Cold War and today. Because during the Cold War is when this fear of nuclear blackmail really started to take off. Um, I study China's nuclear forces a lot, and I know that in the 1960s when they developed the bomb, a big U.S. concern was what if they use this for blackmail? What if they use their arsenal to kind of push or throw their weight around in the region some more um, and scare our allies? And this prompted a very serious discussion within the Johnson administration about the merits of using force against China to get rid of this capability early. And we're seeing similar discussions play out in regards to Iran and North Korea, the idea of do we keep military options on the table to prevent this outcome from happening. And the chapter of the book that deals with this issue is by Todd Sexer and Matt Furman, who wrote a fantastic book on the subject that you should all also go buy and read. And they, they basically reprised a, a smaller version of their book for, our, for ours. And what they find through a really good mix of quantitative methodology and some historical case studies is that the impact of nuclear weapons as a coercive tool, right, as a tool for blackmail is probably overstated, that they do not actually give a state any kind of unique advantages when it comes to trying to coerce others, and that there are ways to resist nuclear blackmail that states can take that don't require this sort of immediate escalation to military use against a country that's thinking about getting nuclear weapons. It doesn't mean that a country won't try. Um, and they're very clear about that, that you know, a country like North Korea can still try to use its arsenal for blackmail purposes, but the success rates of those types of events are so very low um, that they shouldn't sort of be this uh, an all-encompassing fear for U.S. policymakers when we're thinking about the consequences 
of a country obtaining nuclear weapons. Caroline, the chapter also speaks about, or argues rather, that timing matters when it comes to nuclear blackmail, or at least that the surrounding circumstances matter when it comes to nuclear-backed aggression. Can you perhaps elaborate on this a little bit? I mean, of course, I think in all sort of diplomatic relations, timing is going to be an incredibly crucial part of this. And it's also going to be a huge part of like, what is the climate at that time? What's the international climate like? Um, and you can really see this in part through looking at the Iran nuclear deal and what it was trying to achieve and what it has, you know, what it was successful in achieving when it was first implemented and then the slow collapse of that treaty has been very, very instrumental. And Eric, I believe you've been following this pretty closely. If you want to chime in with some particulars, I really only know the top line parts of that one. Yeah, so when it comes to the blackmail and timing, I think Caroline's right in terms of the environment. And I'll focus it on Asia again just because I, I know it best. But take, for example, the moment we're in right now with the U.S.-South Korea alliance, where you have a situation where the Trump administration is pushing very hard on things like the special measures agreement or the cost-sharing deal. And what's that, what that's doing is creating a lot of friction between the U.S. and South Korea. And I think in an environment like that, a nuclear blackmail attempt by North Korea might be more successful because of the political alliance unity problem on the other side. And so when it comes to the fear of blackmail, I think what's important for resisting it is good practices by the United States and its allies to have plans in place and to have uh, ways for dealing with that should the problem arise, rather than jumping to the use of military force to try and head off the problem early, which is what some people like John Bolton have suggested for Iran and North Korea. So I guess the next couple of weeks will be particularly interesting. We should really look at the nuclear dimension when it comes to the North Korea-U.S. relationship as they are discussing renewing disagreement with South Korea. Perhaps we can quickly switch gears and talk briefly about missile defense systems. In the book also, there's this chapter on missile defense, and it talks about the fact that the United States possesses the most advanced missile defense system by a wide margin. However, decision makers in D.C. are still pushing for an expansion of missile defenses. So perhaps I'll start with you, Eric. What is your assessment of the upgrades that have been proposed so far? Yeah, so it seems like missile defense is this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy right now, because when the United States left the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty in 2002, We said that our arsenal, our missile defense systems were for protecting against countries like Iran and North Korea, not for protecting against countries like China and Russia. The Chinese and Russians don't really believe this, and they see the upgrades as threatening. And so they start developing new technologies such as hypersonic weapons to get around or through missile defense. And now the U.S. is saying, oh, shoot, there are these hypersonic weapons and other new capabilities. We need to also defend against them, too. And so you can see how it's this kind of strange, like, self-fulfilling prophecy wherein, you know, we, we make a policy decision on BMD or missile defense uh, for one express purpose. The adversaries that don't believe us and, and that our missile defense will be restrained take other actions to counteract it. 
and then we're in a position of, oh no, now we have to take extra actions to counteract their initial reaction. And so this leads to a kind of spiral. And what I say in my chapter on this is that it's kind of producing this escalation where you know both sides are facing incentives to keep on improving things uh, tit for tat in ways that undermine nuclear deterrence and make uh, controlling nuclear escalation, especially within a conflict, very hard. And I think that's a negative thing. Basically, that the feedback loop that Eric is describing is basically just a encapsulated arms race. This is what happens. Those, those feedback loops and those spirals is, you know, really fundamentally about the U.S. deciding unilaterally to invest in a particular system, and then our potential adversaries are going to invest in countering that system. That's how arms races start. That's how they are continually perpetuated, and then that's how you end up spending trillions and trillions of dollars over a long time horizon on these systems that, you know, fingers crossed, never actually see a day in conflict. Well, that's interesting what you're just mentioning, and I think this ties to my next question. Caroline, can you elaborate on what this relationship between nuclear capability and space actually means in terms of triggering a new arms race, in terms of deterrence? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think it is very important to note that some of the basic international agreements about what types of systems get put into space have made it very, very explicit that nuclear weapons are not to be based in outer space at any given point. So there are some international limits on basing an actual nuclear weapon in space. What is up there um, is satellites, uh, at least from our side. It's definitely satellites, and it's kind of a tricky situation. And Todd Harrison's uh, chapter on space-based assets and nuclear implications for those systems is really, really wonderful and a relatively short and easy read. So if you're interested in this, I highly recommend looking at his chapter. The reason that these satellites matter is not that they have nuclear weapons based on them. It's because they manage the command and control of those systems. So they are handling GPS locating. They are handling all of the communication software for those systems. They are helping the military know and manage their on-the-ground systems on a day-to-day basis. One of the things that Todd brings up in his chapter is that our satellites and the way that we have designed them means that we buy, you know, maybe one, maybe two very, very expensive, very, very intricate amazing satellites that do a ton of different stuff. So they don't just do the nuclear mission. They also fulfill a ton of conventional capability systems. And they also do like GPS and communications for our conventional forces, just like our nuclear ones. The problem with this model is if we were in a conflict scenario and an adversary took out one of these satellites, you're going to have some confusion about whether they were trying to take out the conventional aspect or the nuclear aspect, because that's an early warning signal for an incoming first strike. If they're trying to take out the systems that would allow us to retaliate, that's going to cause some confusion in the chain and be very, very potentially dangerous. So what Todd is saying is maybe think about how we are buying these satellites. And rather than buying one to two 
really amazing, exquisite satellites that do all of these different things. Maybe we should be parsing out some of these separate system functions and buying more by volume, but relatively cheaper and designed to do a specific purpose. So you take out that extra layer of uncertainty were a satellite to be targeted in conflict. So as we come to a close, I'd like to ask you both, what do you see as the most pressing nuclear challenge for the U.S. administration? And what course of action would you recommend to decision makers? Um, Eric, I'll ask you to comment first, and then we'll turn to Caroline for the last word. Yeah, so I think one of the biggest challenges as far as I see it is thinking through what do we actually want to deter, what scenarios are we trying to prevent, and then figuring out what is the best mix of things for doing it, especially as we become more focused on great powers like Russia and China. On the China side, there's really just a lack of understanding about China's nuclear forces and how they work and how they think about things. And I think that if we ever end up in a crisis with them, that's going to produce some very Uh, dangerous situations and very real potential for escalation, not on purpose, but accidentally or inadvertently. And I think that having discussions with the Chinese or figuring out a way to share some information on this front and to try and come to some mutual understandings or some rules of the road for how each side might behave is going to be very challenging, but also very essential as the relationship is poised to get worse and worse. Uh, So that's what I think is the big challenge is that We don't really have great mechanisms anymore of uh, sort of like controlling that nuclear risk and talking with our adversaries about uh, where red lines are or how behavior might work. And it's something that the the worse the relationship gets, becomes it becomes a harder conversation to have, but also a more essential conversation to have. And I'm just very worried that we haven't seen much progress on on that front yet. So. If I'm going to answer this question, it's going to have to be in two parts, because I've got two different directions for different parts of the government. And the first is really for policymakers that are in Congress, because Congress has the job year to year that they have to decide budget levels. They have to fund the government. They have to decide how much money is going to particular missions. And they, they are tasked with the burden of determining priorities and then funding those priorities appropriately. Um, so to Congress, I would say looking at the nuclear arsenal and the program of record, looking at the modernization plan and just how much money we are set to spend, not just over the next year, but the next 30 to 50 years on this one area of our military, we need to make sure that everything that we are buying suits not just our needs today, but our future needs. So that is what I would say to Congress. What I would say to the administration is arms control, arms control, arms control. This is a huge problem um, in the international sphere, and it's really at the behest of the administration to fix it. New START is set to expire in about a year, and if it is allowed to expire, That means that there are no more limits on the Russian or American arsenals, and we lose all of the valuable intelligence that we are gaining from that treaty. It is working. The Russians are invested in continuing to have this treaty. It saves them money. They are allowed to see exactly where our systems are deployed. It increases our safety and security. 
and yet the administration seemingly has expressed not necessarily a willingness to talk to the Russians, but just more of a complete neutrality. We haven't really heard a ton of statements out of the administration about New START, and when we have, quite frankly, they have been troubling. So it's not just making sure that New START gets extended in the short term, but also looking at bilateral arms control or a norms-based arms control, some way to embrace non-proliferation again. That has got to be the purview of the administration, of the executive, and it just simply has to be done in order to make sure that the number of nuclear weapons on our Earth decreases rather than increases in the future. So I guess both of your answers, um, the common thread here seems to me dialogue, dialogue, and more dialogue in order to guarantee global strategic stability when it comes to nuclear matters. And um, obviously the point is also well taken about the need to economize state expenditure when it comes to the United States nuclear arsenal and the impending danger of the expiration of the next arms control agreement, which is uh, might happen next year and prospects are not looking good that it will actually be extended. But let me both thank you, Eric and Caroline, for taking the time to speak with us today. It was a great pleasure and I think a very insightful discussion. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Remember to look for us on our website, SoundCloud and iTunes under the name of East West Institute, where you can listen, follow and subscribe so you won't miss our conversations. Thank you for listening.